Uh, welcome back to the college students. We're so glad to have you. Uh, excited that you're here. I know there's a bunch in the first service as well. Uh, my name is Timothy. If I haven't met you, I'm excited to, to be here with you this morning to open up God's Word together. Uh, this week marks our final week in our summer sermon series entitled Sacred Practices. Uh, each week uh, we've taken a look at eight different practices, disciplines that Christ has gifted to his church uh, for the purpose of molding and shaping our hearts. Uh, practices through which God pours out his presence and his grace and that God utilizes to form us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. And my hope is that this sermon uh, series has been helpful for you. That as you've sought to try out these practices, that you've found them to be fruitful, that they have maybe even begun to produce in you a richer and deeper inner life and, and closer intimacy with the Father. And this morning we're going to be wrapping up this series by looking at one final practice, sacred practice of serving others. And so I'm going to invite you, uh, if you're able, one last time to stand for the, the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. and He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word, that each of us here would encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but when I hear a story like this, I can't help but ask the question, what would I have done if I had been there? 
Years ago, two psychologists from Princeton Seminary decided to do a little experiment to try to determine the answer to that very question. And the way that they conducted the experiment was by asking some of their seminary students to give a talk to a group of professors on the parable of the Good Samaritan and the relevance of, of Christian ministry to daily life. Not only that, but these students were given very little notice of the talk they were supposed to give. And then at the last minute, it was communicated to the students that they were running late for the presentation. And then on the way, each of the students encountered a man on the side of the road who was moaning for help. And the question was, who would stop? Who would help? And the data wasn't terrible. Some of the students did in fact stop and tried to help the man. However, many of the students, for whatever reason, maybe feeling the pressure of the moment, maybe feeling the need to impress their professors, maybe they were afraid for their own safety, for whatever reason, they refused to stop. They passed by on the other side. I wonder, would I have stopped? Would you have stopped? I mean, is not service to others one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith? Does not Jesus in Matthew 25 say the way to differentiate from authentic Christianity and pretend Christianity between the sheep and the goats is how one treats the least of these? Meaning that service to others is evidence that you are a disciple of Christ. To quote the late Tim Keller from his book, Ministries of Mercy, he says, a life poured out in deeds of compassion, especially for the poor, is the inevitable sign that you have experienced Christ's salvation. It doesn't give us life, but rather proves that we have been with the giver of life. I don't question whether Keller is right in what he says, yet at the same time, I wonder, can I really say that my life is particularly marked by deeds of compassion poured out for the poor? How many times have you and I seen someone in need and simply passed by on the other side? Which is why I think we need this text. We need the Word of God to speak into this aspect of our lives. Amen? And there are four things that I think our text reveals on this topic of service to others. It tells us why we serve, how we serve, the practice of serving, and the fruit of serving. Hi, why, how, the practice, and the fruit of serving. And I want to acknowledge that we're going to spend most of our time on the why. And then we will hit the final three points much more succinctly. So why do we serve others? The parable of the Good Samaritan, no doubt one of the most famous scriptures on the topic of service to others. And yet I, I want to note here, in spite of its notoriety, I believe this is one of the most commonly misinterpreted scriptures in the Bible. And I think the reason why we're so inclined to miss the point is it's easy to read the parable apart from its context. How many of you, now don't raise your hands, have heard this parable taught this way? That Jesus' point is that we need to be helpful to people in need, especially people that you don't like, just like the Samaritan. 
which apart from the context is a very reasonable interpretation of the parable. However, I want you now to look with me at all that surrounds this story. The first thing that we need to pay attention to is who is the original audience? Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to a lawyer, not someone who solves legal disputes, but rather in first century Israel, a lawyer was an expert in God's law, a Bible scholar, a theologian. But he's not just a lawyer. This lawyer is a lawyer with a very specific desire. Verse 29 says he had a desire to justify himself, a desire to get right with God. See, the basic premise of this man's life is that if he can be virtuous enough, that God will approve of him. And that based upon his virtue, verse 25, he will inherit eternal life. And Jesus, knowing this about the man, he sets a trap for the lawyer. As one commentator says, Jesus sets a trap of love, a trap that won't bind the lawyer, but will ultimately set him free. And the way he does this is by asking him, what kind of virtue does the Bible teach is required in order to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer answers correctly. He shares what had become the broadly accepted summary of the whole of God's law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, bingo. Go and do that and you will live. Now, the problem is that both Jesus and the lawyer know that that is impossible. Not even for a single day can we love God unequivocally. Can we put him above everything else that we love, that we care about, nor can we ever fully love our neighbor as ourselves because our selfishness and our, and our sinfulness just won't allow it. And if the lawyer had the humility in this moment to see this, he would have right then fallen on his knees and said, Jesus, help me, I can't do it. How then can a sinner like me be saved? But that's not what he says. See, because this man is intent upon justifying himself. And instead he responds with another question, verse 29, well then, who then is my neighbor? You see, in asking this question, who is my neighbor, what he's trying to do is, is to whittle down God's law into something that's more reasonable, more doable, something that he can accomplish. He asked Jesus, who really is my neighbor, meaning it can't be everyone. Jesus, just give me the list of the people that I have to love like this. What's the minimum standard for salvation? I'm going to do that. I'm pretty sure I can, I can love my neighbor as myself if we just put some limits on my neighborhood. Which brings us to the parable. And it's this man and his question that prompts Jesus to share this story. And the riddle for the lawyer and for us to solve that unlocks the true meaning of the story is where has Jesus placed the lawyer in the story? Which character is he? Now, again, let's reflect upon the traditional interpretation of the parable. Be, be helpful to people in need, even people you don't like, just like the Samaritan. And we come to that interpretation by believing that Jesus has placed the lawyer and us in the story as the Samaritan, as the one who is doing the helping, as the hero of the story. And there's three reasons why the lawyer cannot 
be the Samaritan in this story first. Think about, again, the motive behind the lawyer's question. He wants to justify himself. However, the lawyer's very question implies that he knows he can't possibly love everyone as himself. So then what would be gained by Jesus informing the lawyer that the list of people whom he is supposed to love as himself is far greater than the lawyer ever imagined? See, the lawyer is in search of some, some sort of guidance for what he can do in order to justify himself. It would make no sense then for Jesus to multiply the burden of this command exponentially and then leave the lawyer with the parting words, go and do likewise. That's cruel. And Jesus is not cruel. The second reason why the lawyer cannot be the Samaritan is the ethnicity of the protagonist. This clearly points to the fact that Jesus is up to something far different. You see, the protagonist in this story is the Samaritan, the ethnic group that is most despised by the Jews. If Jesus' message was for the lawyer to serve his enemies, why not make the protagonist a Jew and put the Samaritan in the ditch? It makes no sense for him to flip the script. The last reason why we know the lawyer can't be the Samaritan and the most weighty, I think, is look at the final question that Jesus asked to the lawyer. Again, if the point is that Jesus is trying to expand the lawyer's view of who his neighbor is, then the closing question should have been, who then is your neighbor? To which the lawyer would have said, everyone, even the Samaritan, even my enemy. But that's not the question that Jesus asks, is it? Instead, he asks, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man? Do you see how Jesus flips the question on its head? The question that Jesus knows the lawyer really needs the answer to is not who is your neighbor, but rather who has neighbored you? Not who is, who, who, who must I show mercy to, but rather who has shown mercy to me? I think you see it now. The key which unlocks the meaning of this whole story is that Jesus has placed the lawyer not on the horse but in the ditch. And that he longs for the lawyer to see that the one who comes to his rescue is Jesus. He's always the hero. There's more. Why do you think Jesus made the hero a Samaritan? The answer is because the first two guys who passed by, the priest and the Levite, they were supposed to help. It was their religious duty to come to the aid of those in need. But the Samaritan, he had no obligation whatsoever to help out a Jew. For a Samaritan, he would have thought the Jew deserved to be in the ditch. That's where he belonged. And by making the hero of Samaritan, the story all of a sudden becomes not about merit, not about inheriting something, but rather about grace, about a free gift from an enemy, from someone who owes you nothing, from someone who owes you the opposite. And that's the trap of love that Jesus is trying to set, a trap that reveals to the lawyer his own ditchness. I made that word up. It's not a word. That, that the lawyer is in no position to extend mercy, but rather is in desperate need of mercy. 
And church, that is you and me. That is where we belong in this story as well, in the ditch, in desperate need of an act of free grace. Remember the lawyer's original question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus answers through this story, there's nothing you can do, but there's something that has been done for you. And in this, Jesus has given us the answer to the question why we serve. We serve not to save ourselves, but we serve as those who have been and are being served by Jesus Christ. Look at how the story ends. Jesus concludes the parable with the question, who is the one who proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And you see, it's in the lawyer's answer that we see that he finally gets it, that the gospel is about receiving not earning. It is the one who receives who becomes equipped to then go and do likewise. And it's then that Jesus finally feels the freedom to send the lawyer out because the lawyer has tasted the radical grace of Jesus Christ. Why do we serve others? Where does the motivation come from? It comes from the profound and unimaginable beauty of experiencing and receiving God's grace and mercy towards us. That's the why. By allowing God's grace to do its work on us, we more and more are motivated and empowered to serve others. We will never be a good neighbor until we've been neighbored by another. And thank God, as Eugene Peterson says in the Message Bible, that Jesus became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Which leads us to our second point, knowing now why we serve, not to justify ourselves because we are the ones who have been justified, who have been served by Christ. We can now ask the more practical question, how are we to serve? And the answer of that question flows directly out of the why. Jesus refuses to give the lawyer any imperative until he really gets it, until he really sees his own need for mercy and until he embraces his own ditchness. And so the question, church, I have for you is what has you lying half dead on the side of the road? And I know the Sunday school answer is your sin, but I want you to be more honest than that. In what ways are you profoundly needy? You know what keeps me in the ditch? I'm an addict. I am addicted to approval. I need it so bad. And when I don't have it, I am a complete mess. And that addiction, that desperate need for approval, along with a lot of other things, keeps me in the ditch, keeps me needy. What has you in the ditch? The good news is that when we come to grips with our own ditchness, the result is that we will begin to look differently at others. We will begin to see people not as uniquely messed up, but rather as fellow ditch dwellers. Look again at our text. Jesus intentionally selects the person that would have been hardest for the lawyer to love as a neighbor. Like I said before, the Jews felt full freedom to view the Samaritans as subhuman. They believed that Samaritans belonged in a ditch. Well, the question I have for you is, who are your Samaritans? 
Who are those that you feel like deserve to be in the ditch, who are unworthy of being served by you? For some of you, it might be the addict, the one who's struggling with substance abuse and has made some bad choices that have led to their ditchness. For some of you, it might be those who embrace a certain ideology or political view or, or doctrine or, or those who voted for Trump or those who voted for Biden, those who support abortion, those who are against abortion. Culturally, we've gotten so comfortable putting people in this category, haven't we? Of being unworthy of being served by us. However, to embrace our ditchness is to embrace that I am no better than any other person. I am just as in need of grace. I'm just as unworthy of grace. And when we embrace that view of one another, it inevitably transforms the way that we serve one another. You know what the most dignifying thing that you can do for another person is? It's actually not to serve them but rather to let them serve you. There's no more dignifying action than to let another person meet you in your neediness and provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. A couple years ago, I was in a mercy appointment. I was meeting with one of our neighbors who was experiencing some financial burden. And before the meeting, I'd been sitting in this passage and thinking about what my ditchness looks like and, and what it might look for me to invite someone else into my neediness. And I had been having a, a hard week. S stuff at home had been hard, just struggling. And normally I would have just faked it. I just would have presented myself as together and put together and okay and, and just kind of gone through the meeting and, and, and tried to meet someone else's needs. But that day I decided not to do that. And during that meeting, as this older woman was sharing some of her neediness with me, I began to share some of my neediness with her. And, and in that neediness, I asked this woman to pray for me, to pray over me. And, and no offense to the professional Christians in the room, but I've never been so blessed by a prayer in my life. She gave me an invaluable gift that day, a gift that I would not have received if I hadn't been honest about my neediness, and if I had not seen this woman the way that God sees her, not as one who's purely needy, but rather as one who's created in the image of God, who, has, who was designed with immeasurable dignity and has far more to offer than I could ever imagine. Not only that, but I saw so much joy and delight in this woman's eyes when she left that meeting because I knew that she knew she had given me a gift. And I'm pretty sure that was more significant to her than the financial gift that the church gave. That's the meat of the how. God is inviting us not to be the hero in other people's lives. The church has played God for far too long and encouraged an unhealthy dependence that is reserved for God alone. But rather, Jesus is inviting the lawyer, inviting you and me into what we call here at Christ Central dignified interdependence, a recognition of our mutual ditchness, our shared neediness, our shared dignity, the reality that we have all have something beautiful to offer to one another. 
That's the how. We serve as one who knows what it's like to be in the ditch. We serve as one who refuses to classify anyone as non-neighbor, but rather chooses to embrace that all people are created in the image of God and therefore have immeasurable worth and value and have much to offer to make my life and your life in this world a better place. It leads to our third point this morning, the practice of serving. You might be wondering in what ways is service a sacred practice? And that's the name of the sermon series, right? It sounds like we've been talking about service as more of a biblical mandate rather than a sacred practice. It makes me think about premarital counseling. When I finish up my premarital counseling with a couple, I always caution them about our culture's definition of love. This idea that love is something that controls us, that we fall in and out of, makes me think of Nicholas Sparks. I think I'm dating myself. I warn them that married couples who embrace this idea will inevitably come back into my office years after they say I do, complaining about how the fire has gone out. To which I will ask, what have you been doing lately to add fuel to the flame? And I encourage them not to go date other people, but to start dating each other again. To do the things they did when they fell in love in the first place, and they will probably fall in love again. Because, you see, love is not something we fall in and out of, but rather something that we move toward, that we fight for. When we act out our love for one another, what inevitably happens is our heart follows. Service is very similar. I don't know about you, but my normal MO in life is not to serve people. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, who am I going to serve today? However, when I do serve, even when I don't want to, more often than not, my heart follows my action. And I feel so enriched by entering into the ditch with another image bearer. And, and oftentimes in the ditch, I'm reminded of how Christ meets me in the ditch over and over and over again. That's why service is a practice, because when we, from that place of awareness of our neediness, of our ditchness, go ahead and practice the service of others, even when we don't want to, more often than not, our heart will follow and our service will become more of a delight than a duty. Lastly, I want to look at briefly the fruit that grows from us as a church, taking up this spiritual practice of service to others. You see, one of the questions that has dumbfounded scholars for quite some time is how this obscure, marginal Jesus movement led by a handful of uneducated, common men and women became the dominant religious force in the Western world in just a few centuries. And historian Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, points out that one of the main factors of the unprecedented rise of Christianity was the way that Christians served others. And he cites this, this famous letter from the Roman Emperor Julian who was so upset about how fast that Christianity was growing and how paganism was shrinking. And he writes this letter to a friend and he says, why do we not observe how the charity of Christians to strangers has done so much to advance their cause? It is disgraceful that these Christians support our poor in addition to their own, while everyone is able to see that our co-religionists, our pagan friends, lack aid from us. 
What he's saying and what history reveals is, is that when Christians look at others, others who are not like them, others who, who don't even believe the gospel and meet their needs with such concreteness, the inevitable result is that those who are being served will be dumbfounded. And they will need to hear the gospel because otherwise the behavior makes no sense. I want to close with a story. One of my seminary professors, Steve Brown, he made it a practice of, of bringing wayward children into his home. Children who were in a home situation where they were either abandoned or abused. And one time, one of these kids was, was, was staying with the Browns and went with them on a family vacation to the beach. And the vacation was going great. Everybody was having a blast and getting along well. And this young girl who they had brought into their home asked if she could go on a walk with, with Steve. And as they strolled down the beach, Steve looks down and this, this young girl is crying, tears streaming down her face. And he, he stops and puts his arm around her and asks, what's wrong? What's, what's going on? And she looked up to, to Steve, looked up at him, and through tear-filled eyes and said these words. She said, I wish I had a family like yours, and I wish I had a dad like you. Church, how beautiful would it be if we began to serve in such a way that our neighbors would look at this community and say, I wish I had a family like yours, and I wish I had a dad like him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess uh, that our lives are not marked by service to others. And we are selfish and we serve ourselves more than others day in and day out. And Father, we thank you that in spite of our selfishness, you have seen us in the ditch and you have come to our rescue. And you have redeemed us and poured out your grace and your love and your mercy upon us. And Father, would that glorious act of love and grace and kindness be the thing that motivates us to get into the ditch with others and love and serve with empathy and dignity and compassion. We pray these things in Jesus' name.